Well, on the first week of the NHL playoffs, man, they have been entertaining, especially this past weekend. The Canucks, of course, are not in them. But the baby Canucks, the Abbotsford Canucks, are very much alive. A two-game sweep in their opening round playoff series against Bakersfield. They advance to play Calgary's minor league affiliate. And how good is that? That, you know, what, what used to be at one point a rivalry in the Pacific Division with the Canucks and Calgary, well, their minor league affiliates are going to get it done. Game one of Abbotsford versus Vancouver starts on April the 26th. Uh, that's this Wednesday. First two games are in Calgary. The next three games are going to be in Vancouver. And atmosphere's been good. The performance has been good. There's a lot to like if you want to make your way out to the Valley and watch Abby. Absolutely. It's been, especially in that barn, right? I haven't been to these two playoff ones, but I've been to a few regular season games there. And just with how um, small the rink is and how, um, I, I guess maybe it's because the tickets are cheaper, but the the fans there are so much are so much more riled up there as well. So um, it's much more of like a casual sort of fun vibe, I'd say, compared to, let's say, sometimes Rogers Arena when you go to Canucks games there. Uh, and because of that, it's a much more intimate, fun um, atmosphere, even in the regular season. So I can't even imagine how that building's been rocking in um, in the playoffs. Because genuinely, I remember going uh, out to Abbotsford. And my first thought was, "Oh my God, the atmosphere here is um, is amazing. It's so much fun." So um, it's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun, and it's going to be a tough challenge, right? Going up against Calgary's affiliate, they um, led the AHL in in points in the regular season. They have Dustin Wolf, who you look through Wolf's uh, track record in that, right? AHL MVP of the year this year. AHL top goaltender of the year last year. The year before that, WHL top goaltender of the year, two consecutive seasons. He's only 22, one of the top goaltending prospects in in um, in all of hockey. That's going to be a massive test uh, for, the, for the baby Canucks. And, and it's one that I'm really excited to see as well because... Uh, I think it's a great opportunity for somebody like Nils Hoaglander, who's had a dominant playoff so far, to try and prove his, um, try and take the next, the next level in the in the confidence of uh, his finishing game, for example, against uh, a legit NHL caliber goaltender. As you know, with with Wolf, it's it's only a matter of time. He's going to be in the NHL next season, um, we assume. Yeah, you just wonder what that situation in Calgary right now surrounding Jacob Markstrom and and where they want to go with that because certainly he hasn't uh, been top-level Jacob Markstrom this past season. Let's break the matchup down. We'll get into Hoaglander in a minute, but um, the two teams played each other 12 times this season, so they know all about one another. Uh, Abbotsford's record in that has been 4-5-2-1, so Calgary managed to win 12, or sorry, 8 of the 12 games with the Canucks winding uh, winding up winning four, but also getting some points uh, in uh, in a, three of the games that they lost. This is a pretty complete team, but the Canucks have managed to play them close throughout, even in the, in the games that they've lost. Yeah, and they've been driven really in terms of their their top end talent. Uh, we've we saw in game two, for example, Carlton really kind of shortening uh, the bench a little bit. Obviously, the Dowling first line has been getting a lot of uh, a lot of rope. Hoaglander's line with Sasson, who's been tremendous in signing from the NCAA they're really driving the bus among the forward lines not only in terms of dynamic playing the offensive zone but just their hard-working style on the forecheck and uh, you look at the back end Christian Wallanen is going to need to continue being an animal like it's it was actually hilarious after seeing him in the NHL go you know 
he's back down in the A and he's just headed, he was head and shoulders above any other defenseman, um, uh, whether it was on Abbotsford's side or, or Bakersfield side. It's, it's, it's been hilarious just watching him evade four checkers, make clean plays like nobody's business and just go about things in such a calm and composed manner. He, he needs to be one of the, um, one of the, one of the Canucks' best players in the series, and um, and really, if it's it, if the if the Canucks, if the baby Canucks are going to win this series, it's going to be based off of their top end talent, both up front, um, on the back end, and of course in net, they've gotten a lot better goaltending recently. Obviously, from Martin really catching fire down the stretch and, and playing well in Game One, and then Seedovs as well, um, putting in a pretty rock solid performance in Game Two. Yeah, were you surprised they started Martin in game one? And, and are you surprised they didn't ride one and just split them? I'm not too surprised. I think if you look at Martin and Seahawks, they've been splitting starts, alternating them evenly for quite a long time. Like definitely but it's throughout the playoffs. The- it's the playoffs. But here's the it thing. Di- I mean, I think we're we're getting away from that trend of 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 where if you have a tandem, even at the NHL level. Um, I think teams are realizing that just riding one guy might not be, might not always be the best sort of logic. And of course it's case by case, but I remember talking to Kevin Woodley and he would bring up previous tan- tandem scenarios with, um, let's say Marc-Andre Fleury. And he gave, gave the example of Fleury's last year in Vegas when him and Leonard were splitting starts in the regular season, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Then in the playoffs, they went to Flurry. Flurry played the first four games. It was great. Got a 3-1 series lead. But then Flurry, because of that workload, started faltering a little bit. And then when they had to go to Leonard for game one of round two, he had built rust. And they'd sort of gotten that tandem to the point where it's like, you've kind of ridden one guy into fatigue and the other guy into rust and it sort of fell apart there and, and even minnesota last year when they had that tandem with um flurry and talbot both playing excellent down the stretch they went to flurry for flurry first just rode him and then waited until game five or six to get to talbot um and talbot was rusty and flurry in the in through the first um you know four or five games that series was faltering as well so um you know, I, it's it wasn't too surprising um, to me. I thought maybe after the shutout that they would have gone back to Martin again, but um, I, we've seen other AHL teams do this as well in terms of if, if they have two goalies that have been both playing well to just alternate them, even if we haven't seen it as um, happen as often in the NHL. Well, certainly it's working. And from an organizational development standpoint, it's a win. You know, Spencer Martin playing the way he is, and able to kind of get his game back once he got down to Abbotsford and kind of work on some things and rebuild his confidence, I think is really important for the entire organization. Um, you know, and, and you may wind up with kind of a, I don't want to call it herky-jerky, but an, not necessarily a linear path next year for Silovs, right, where we could wind up seeing him play a stretch of time in Vancouver, play a stretch of time in Abbotsford, and it kind of go back and forth for him. So for all of them to have that level of adaptability and pliability, I think is a really good thing. And they're able to stay consistent with it with their performance, I think is uh, is a real win for the organization. And you touched on Nils Hoaglander in that line. You know, just the adjustment that Matt Sasson has made in a position of organizational need down the middle, what he's been able to do immediately in the American Hockey League is a great thing for this organization. And then you've got Nils Hoaglander. And, and I talked to Ryan Johnson after, and he said he has come so far in his time with us right now. Uh, this was after the, the Game 2 win. 
Uh, Jeremy Colleton said after that Nils was a big catalyst, winning races, strong in the puck, and winning battles. I can't remember a puck management issue in two games, which for as much as he's had the puck is pretty impressive. That's a big reason why we won. So just his ability to drive play, his ability to finish, and play in all areas of the ice, you know, he is, this is his early training camp. This is his early tryout to be a full-time NHLer in Vancouver next year. Absolutely. And what's key that you mentioned in terms of what Carlton was saying, what Ryan Johnson was, was saying, is that it isn't just about the point production. It is, isn't just about the four points in two games and creating a lot of scoring chances. It's been the fact that he's winning all these loose pucks. It's been how he's winning all these battles along the wall. It's been the effective north-south style that they've played where that line is not only relied upon to create offense, but they're playing a responsible two-way style. It's the fact that he's making not only dynamic plays off the rush, but you're getting that without the cost of questionable decision-making on entries, which we saw sometimes in Vancouver where he'd maybe force a play in a situation where he, where he shouldn't and, and he'd turn the puck over or we'd see the occasional glaring defensive lapses. The completeness of Hoaglander's impact has really been impressive to, to see. And, and, and it's what you hope translates to tra- training camp next year because with Hoaglander, the, the, the fast, tenacious north-south style that he plays you can see how it, how it would translate so well under the type of hockey Rick Tockett wants the Canucks to play. But then on the other hand, it's been always about the puck management. It's been about the defensive responsibility. And we've seen that that Tockett isn't going to give guys a free free pass in those departments. So for Hoaglander to show progress in those areas is equally as important as the dominant offensive production. Anyone else jump out to you in this series? Yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned Wolanin, um, Sasan. I think I think that, that he's been the biggest surprise for me, to be honest. Yeah, me too. Coming out of the NCAAs and immediately becoming a really effective driver at the AHL level is 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 really is really good stuff to see. I mean, right off the bat, his work rate, the speed, the hard nosed style. I mean, he's taken a couple of absolute whopper, massive hits, and has bounced back. Uh, Right away, he's known his role on that line. He knows that, okay, hey, it's going to be Hoaglander that is making the dynamic plays. I've just got to make sure that I'm a, I'm in a position to support the puck, that I play a pretty simple straight line game, that I take care of things defensively. He's adapted himself really well. And to be in a position where, again, I can't emphasize this enough, playing at an NCAA level to now you're one of the team's top two centermen in, in the AHL playoffs, Carlton's riding that line consistently and he, and he's shortened the bench and and he's get, and he's given Sasan's line that level of trust. Uh, I think that speaks volumes to how well he's acquitted himself in in such a short uh, sample year. Yeah, and when you get guys that play a full NCAA career before making the move, um you know, you generally you, you get an older guy, you get a guy that's a little more physically prepared and one of the things the Canucks said about him when they signed him was that he plays a mature game. And that certainly seems to be showing in all these situations that it it hasn't been too big for him. And obviously, he's played big games in the NCAA, but now you're you're playing against pros and you're playing against men, and it's different. But he he is a man, and he's got that mature game, and I think uh, they're able to ride that short term, and and we'll see what that does in terms of his place in the organization, big picture. Again, Abbotsford and Vancouver, game one and two are going to be played in Calgary Wednesday and Friday, 
And then game three in Abbotsford. It's a best of five series. That's going to be May the 3rd, next Wednesday, with games four and five, if necessary, on Friday and Sunday, the 5th and 7th after that. So get out to the Valley when you can. You get the sense when you look at this, it's going to be a long series. I mean, even though uh, the points percentage was high as far as Calgary is concerned, really these two teams have only been separated by three goals through 12 games. Uh, Power play goals, seven each. Um, It's... uh, there's a lot to like here. There, there's a lot to like in terms of what this matchup is going to look like. So if you get a chance to get out there and watch some playoff hockey in the Valley, make sure that you do that. And um, before we go to break, I want to get into a one Canuck move, and that is the departure of Jason King from the coaching staff. Now, on on some level, let's say, look, this shouldn't be a surprise. You had a new coach that came in. King was a holdover. He brought in two of his additional coaches. He's probably got some ideas on – who he wants additionally working up front with his forwards and potentially on the power play. But as the season progressed and the power play did some good things, uh, Talkett was generally quite complimentary of King and, and the work he was doing with that group. Are you surprised or should we have just expected this right from the beginning? Yeah, it's similar to what you sort of, the way you framed it in that on the one hand, it shouldn't be a surprise in that new head coach comes in and, and King is not only a holdover from the last coaching staff, but the coaching staff before that, Travis Green was the one who initially hired him, and it's pretty normal. Which, to see- which again, but that that's even more, makes it more of a surprise to me because Green and Talkett are tight. Yeah, a little like yeah, and, and so on the one hand, holdovers typically you'd expect that head coach will eventually sort of pick his guys, but on the other, yeah, it was a little surprising that I didn't necessarily see this coming. I, I you know. I wasn't um, certainly thinking along those lines, especially because when you look at the Canucks' power play under his watch, Kings, that is, over the last two seasons, it's been ninth in the in the NHL. It's pretty good. Ninth even after you count for every NHL team's shorthanded goals against, which the Canucks have obviously had uh, quite a few of. Of course, there's been the inconsistency, I think, of um, of the start of each of these seasons and how the power play cost them. You think back to... Uh, the 2021-22 season where under Green, the Canucks were just awful out of the gate. And it was interesting because they were actually right around even goal differential at 5-on-5. They were just losing games because losing a ton of one-goal games because not only was the penalty kill terrible, but their power play couldn't buy goal. And we obviously saw a lot of stretches where the where the man advantage went cold this year. But honestly, Farhan, aren't most power plays around the NHL generally really hot and cold? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where, like, for me, I mean, because of that, it was a little bit of a surprise. Um, Maybe the coaching staff or management believes that there's another level for this man advantage to reach, where it's like when you look at at them finishing inside the top 10, maybe look at the fact that they had Horvat for most of that stretch as well, alongside, obviously, Pedersen, Hughes, Miller, Kuzmenko for this season, and you go... All right, that's a man advantage that should probably be closer to knocking on the on the door of of being top five. Maybe that's maybe that's uh, the logic. Um, the one thing that's interesting though with the power play in general, and it doesn't necessarily relate to who runs it, is, is just generally speaking, I think it's going to be really fascinating to see how they just post Horvat because once you count for the shorthanded goals that the Canucks surrendered after the Horvat trade, their net power play percentage ranked 19th in the NHL. So it wasn't very good below league average. We know they 
struggled to find the natural fit for a left shot bumper in that role. And they even had to experiment with, sh- with some right shot guys. I'm going to be really interested to see how they adapt uh, because I think we're so used to in Vancouver seeing a power play that, that okay, it might be streaky, but pretty consistently it's, it's, it's been above average. And at times, even in the 1920 season under Newell Brown, we've seen with this core group that it can, it can be an elite power play. I don't know if that's necessarily going to be given. I still think that if you play things smart tactically, you you still should be able to have a top 10 power play next year, but losing Horvat on the power play, I still think is going to be, um, is going to be a challenge for whoever ends up taking the power play portfolio going into next season, because Horvat, since the 2021 season, had by far led all Canucks players in power play goals with 31, I believe. Well, and certainly JT Miller had a lot of his production on the power play and watching what they did post Horvat. I do think there was a willingness to explore options and to move players around, you know, and and, and flip sides at times with Pedersen or, or just work it through him from the top as opposed to, uh, you know, as opposed to Quinn Hughes. So, it, like, it did change from time to time, but... And to your point, I mean, these power plays do tend to go streaky, but I I do feel like they're going to wind up with some different options going forward. What do you do with Philip Ronick? Do you eventually get back to two defensemen? Do you let him kind of handle the second one? Do you give them more time? So it's and we'll see which additional forwards they wind up keeping so as to take advantage of them in various various power play opportunities. So we'll see what it looks like. Another thing that was pointed out as far as the coaching staff is concerned, and there was also a report at one point that the Canucks might be losing Mike Yo, but we're not sure that's going to happen at all. And certainly Talkett had a lot of good things to say about Yo as well at his end of season pressure. So we'll see what the entire coaching staff looks like as we move forward, but certainly some new additions on the way. When we come back, we will... Talk about a former Canuck. We just mentioned him, Bo Horvat, and the absence of him on Vancouver's power play and the impact that had. What impact did the former Canuck captain have on his new team? Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Just a reminder is my appearance here on the VanCast brought to you by my good friends at Key West Ford in New Westminster. Now, Harm, let's talk a bit about Bo Horvat because when the New York Islanders traded for him, Matt Barzal is injured. They're in a playoff push. He wasn't nearly as productive on Long Island as he was in Vancouver, but he still, to quote Travis Green, did a lot of the little things. I mean, he was still getting heavy ice time playing in critical situations. So even though the the obvious point totals weren't there, we still felt like he was productive and impactful in that lineup. They get over the hump, they get into the playoffs, but things aren't going for them, going well for them so far in this series. And Bo Horvat is taking a lot of abuse for how things have gone in Long Island. Yeah, just a single point, uh, the shorthanded goal when it was already 5-1 for Caroline in garbage time. So mm-hmm. definitely, yeah, if you if you scour any Islanders um, sort of, you know, their Twitter or uh, their Reddit or, or any of their sort of online communities, um, a lot of them are, are pretty upset with, uh, with Bo Horvat right now, especially because, look, Matt Barzell comes back after having missed two months, probably rushed his way back from injury. He's been 
pretty quiet. That's expected, right? It's not too surprising that a player who's probably who missed so much time and is probably playing through something um, is um, is struggling. So with Barzell, your your best forward, not playing up to his usual ability, you really therefore need Horvat to. There's even more pressure on him to perform to the absolute peak of his potential, and we just haven't seen it. I mean, even if you go back to including the games in the regular season, since coming to New York, Corvette has just three five-on-five goals in 33 games. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the underlying numbers are good. Yeah, he's been snake-bitten. He shot just 2.9%. Part of it will bounce back. Yes, I know that. But at the end of the day, they brought him in because they needed another top goal scorer. And in that department, he's gone completely quiet. And, and even forget the five-on-five goal scoring, right? Because even with the Canucks, that used to often be a big discussion point was, Oh, does he produce enough at five on five? Whatever. The one constant with Horvat in terms of his goal scoring was he'd always produce on the man advantage. That's actually where the Islanders ironically probably needed more help than at five on five because you look at the regular season, their man advantage ranked 30th in the NHL. They just needed that boost. And what's fascinating is there were around six games that the Islanders got with both Horvat and Barzell in the top unit before Barzell went down with that injury. And in that span, obviously small sample, but New York's power play was top five. So you got some at least hope that, okay, if both of these guys are in the lineup and we've got this passer-shooter combination between Barzell and Horvat, could that really kickstart the power play? Um, but it's been abysmal in these playoffs. Um, 8.3% through these uh, few games against uh, Carolina so far. And because they've allowed a goal back, uh, they aren't even positive goal differential on the power play in this series. So it's been it's been a really tough go for Horvat so far. Horvat says, I think I can be better, to be honest with you, after the loss. He says, I'm doing a lot of good things away from the puck. I'm winning my faceoffs, doing that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, I've got to find ways to score big goals and get on the score sheet, not in a 5-1 or a 5-2 game. i got to find ways to make it meaningful. I've got to be better. Uh, and uh, he says, you know, as far as his line is concerned, because he's been playing with uh, Barzal and Anders Lee, Jordan Stahl's line has been matching up with them. They've been having a lot of success. They haven't been able to get away from that, in certainly in the games in Carolina. And then uh, so much so that Parise got put on Barzal's spot in that line uh, in the third period of that game. So uh, Horvat says we've been doing a lot of good things. It's been a lot of perimeter stuff, though. I think we can get into the blue paint a bit more, maybe not as fancy and try to get some pucks and bodies to the net. You think he's feeling the pressure? Oh, he has to be. You sign for $8.5 million on on a long-term deal like that, especially you look at that Carolina Hurricanes team. Yes, they're extremely well-coached. Yes, they're very well-structured. But at the end of the day, this is a Canes team that is missing Andrei Svechnikov because of injury, Max Pacioretty, and now Toy Vuteravainen as well. That's half their top six. They're missing half their top six on a team that already struggles to score goals in previous postseasons. Plus, you've got Ilya Sorokin, one of the best netminders in the NHL this season. This was a series that a lot of people looked at because of that sort of stylistic matchup with the elite goaltender and, and Carolina's offensive injuries and went, Islanders should win the series, despite them being the lower seed. And um, the other part of it, too, is this Isles team's window is rapidly closing. This team, oh, yeah. I think, is screwed in the long in the long term in the big picture. You look at this uh, this summer, for example, they they already have I want to say around seventy five or seventy six million dollars committed in um in 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 um in cap 
Plus, they've got a couple of key uh, key players in Varlamov and uh, and Scott Mayfield that they need to replace. And at the end of next season, Sorokin, who's only making four million right now, is a pending UFA. So you you know that if he's staying, he's going to get an absolute bag. Their cap situation is is not in a good spot. They've got a lot a lot of aging forwards on deals that probably aren't going to aren't going to um, look very good down the road, including Horvats, obviously. Plus, in the East, you have teams on the upswing like the Sabres and the Senators coming that are going to be competing for, for the exact type of wildcard spot that the Islanders um, won, um, won this past year. So for me, looking at New York, I view them, of course, there's still an offseason to go. There's so much, uh, so many moving parts. But looking at it today, if, if, I, if I had to sort of guess what happens next season, I mean, I'm looking at this Islanders roster and I'm going, man, they're still going to have a shot at making the playoffs, but they're they're on the outside looking in, in my opinion. I, I don't consider them a favorite to get into the playoffs. And if that's the case, that puts that much more pressure on this playoff run and considering how much Lou Lamarell gave up to acquire him, given the contract um, that um, that that he um, that he gave Bo hundred percent. Bo has to feel a lot of pressure right now. Yeah, and I do think that in the long run, Bo Horvat's going to be just fine. Now, I don't think he's ever going to be the goal scorer that he was prior to him being traded this year, right? I mean, just his overall career statistical, uh, you know, analysis didn't point to that, right? He was incredible, and what he was able to do, given all that was surrounding him, I think was really impressive. But I, I do think that. They're not going to be complaining about Bo Horvat going forward, right? Like eight and a half million, you do have to wear that. That becomes difficult, right? But he is still going to be a consistent point producer, a consistent two-way player, a guy that can get things done in the power play at a higher rate than what he's been doing thus far. You know, there's still a, you know, a case to be made that player and team and staff and everybody still get, needs to get used to him as opposed to when you get a guy at the trade deadline, you, you kind of force him into what your needs are as opposed to necessarily – building around him a little bit when they get a chance to kind of go forward and really analyze and assess his game, both what they've seen from him there, but also what he's done previously in Vancouver. So uh, again, like, I mean, is he going to be a 40 goal score? I don't think so, but I do think that he can put up 30 goals and still be a, a consistent, valuable player where you don't look at him and say, you know, he he's totally underperforming his contract. Maybe he's a 7.5 million, a seven to $7.5 million player getting paid 8.5, but he's not going to be what Canuck fans are looking at with Oliver Ekman Larson, right? Uh, like Bo Horvat is not going to be a replacement level player in law in long Island long-term. And as far as who has won the trade, I don't think you can necessarily go there yet because certainly the Canucks, they, they acquired some assets. They used some of those assets to help on the right side of their blue line with Philip Ronick. We don't know what we're going to get out of Philip Ronick until we see a fully healthy, full season version of the player. And, you know, we'll see what happens with Beauvillier and what happens with any of the other assets that, that were acquired. But it, it it's too early to declare a winner yet, is it? I mean, and, and you know what? Probably the, the biggest win is not having to pay $8.5 million right now if you're the Canucks. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you if you can necessarily already call the Canucks winners, but you can certainly look at the Islanders and go, that's a really bad trade for them. Like I already view them as as losers. Uh, first of all, just because I didn't think that they should have been the type of team that trades for Horvat anyway. I viewed. I honestly looked at that Islanders roster, especially because of their long term sort of financial picture, and I didn't really view a path for them to become a sustainable contender. And I felt that this was really a, a sort of desperate move by a general manager in Lula Morello, who was really feeling 
the Heat to um to get results, right? Because if they had missed the playoffs this year, his job would have probably been uh, been gone. And for me, Horvat at eight, eight and a half. I, I know you mentioned he'll bounce back, and I and, and I believe you. He will. He'll be a lot better than he has been for the Islanders so far. But this is a player whose career high is sixty one points, and it's a seven year commitment. So it's going to be an absolute anchor of a contract. The, the only question is, is when it'll become that, is it going to be, is it going to feel that way already within the first two, three years of that deal? Or are you going to feel it more around the, uh, around the midpoint of the contract? Uh, either way, I don't like the situation the Isles are in big picture. Yeah. I mean, look, they certainly made this deal for the now uh, mortgaged a lot, not just in terms of assets, but just in terms of cap space. So it is going to affect him, but I, I do think he can be in the high 60s and, you know, depending on, think of the number of years that Bo Horvat played with absolutely nobody in Vancouver, right? And we know he's not necessarily that creative guy that's going to make everybody around him, uh, you know, a big point producer, but 61 points, it hasn't always been favorable circumstances around Bo Horvat. So I do still think that he can be a 65 to 70 point player. Is he ever going to be a, again, a consistent 40 goal scorer or a 80 to 90 point player? Probably not, right? I don't see that in his future, but you couple what he can do with what he's doing in the faceoff circle. Eventually he's going to be part of their leadership group. All those things I think are going to matter. Uh, and certainly, you know, it's been weird seeing how this market has turned on him quickly, right? Because he did a lot of the right things. And certainly there were a lot of people that believed that, uh, and, and me, one of them, so save the receipt, that the Canucks should have, when they had to make the choice between Miller and Horvat, it should have been Horvat. Um, but, uh, you know, all of that said, I, I, it's almost kind of awkward seeing uh, how the market's turned, or maybe it's just been a, a vocal minority of people on Twitter, right, which is never uh, always the best indicator of, of uh, how tr people truly feel when he comes here and plays in Vancouver next year. We'll see what kind of reaction he gets, and that's probably going to be a better indicator. Well, but certainly the island, or go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to jump in and quickly say, I mean, for starters, I mean, it's not... Like I, I have, I, I've been, I've been surprised as well, but at the same time, say what you want about how it was worded at the end of the day, he did take, he did with those post game comments at the end of the regular season that, that did come off, come off as a shot at the fans. Right. And, and when you have that type of scenario, obviously the fan base is, is going to sort of feel like, all right, this, this player that we supported for so many years is, is kind of turning on us when we've been loyal, right? If it if it had been a situation where it was him going after management or coaching or ownership or whatever, nobody would have cared, right? It was yeah, but yeah. To me, look, I, I get how it's easy to spin it that way, and maybe I'm trying to spin it a different way. But I didn't view it as him taking a shot at the fans. I viewed it as him taking a shot at the situation. And now he's playing in meaningful games, and the atmosphere and intensity around meaningful games mattered to him as opposed to zero meaningful games or not zero, but very few meaningful games for eight years outside of a bubble run, right? Like it's the situation he found himself in just from an excitement, what's at stake, all of it. To me, that's what it was directed at. And I do think he walked it back the next day when he was asked about it, right? So totally, again, but look, people know I'm a whore that, that, that I think a lot of Horvat the person. So uh, I'm obviously going to take it that way. But um, I, I don't think there's going to be a big backlash or any level of booing for Bo Horvat when he comes back to Vancouver next year. Yeah, I, I tend to agree just because at, at um, you know, in that sort of situation, I, I think you let bygones be, be bygones in terms of what was said. Um, but 
could the could the response be less passionate than it than I would have imagined? Let's say a few months ago before the trade, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that soured think- things a little bit. At least a little bit, it soured things. Come on, you've seen the reaction, like right or wrong. Horvat is getting buried in this market. Yeah, I've seen the reaction, but I don't know. Like I said, I mean, is is uh, are a few people on Twitter going to be the people that are going to be in the game that day that are going to make it that uncomfortable? The club's probably going to put together a really good uh, tribute video and, you know, emotions are going to come in on the right side or the good side. And I don't think it's going to be, you know. Like, like I said, it, I don't think it, he's like going to get booed. If I, I don't Bo think Horvat th- comes to Vancouver, people aren't going to heckle him in the streets. Oh, yeah. I, I don't mean that. I, I'm just saying... Could the could the positive reception be like not quite as boisterous or as passionate as you know like for example anytime you know anytime you have certain players like and obviously these are former players but you you see like the Bertuzzi or or Nasland or or Linden come and it's like the roar of the crowd is way different than the response for for other sort of sorts of players I just don't think Horvat because of how things have sort of ended. I still think it'll be like he'll get a great tribute video. It'll I think still be get a standing, standing o. He'll still get a standing, standing o. o. I just don't think it'll be as as loud as or or quite as as passionate as as it may as it perhaps would have been before all this went down. If he gets a standing o, that's plenty. That's more than enough. You'll see the emotion on his face. It'll be plenty. And also, you know, when he shows up that day or the day before, depending on how the schedule looks, and everybody talks to him and he gushes about his time in Vancouver and how much the fans mean to him, it, it, by the, he'll get a standing home. That's really all that counts. You know, right? Like whether it's a 9 out of 10 volume or an 11 out of 10 volume, he'll get a standing home. And that'll, that'll speak volumes and that, that'll matter to him. And that's kind of how it should be. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. As we know, Bo Horvat's team is up against it, down 3-1 in these playoffs. they got a lot of work to do to get back into this. When we come back, we are going to get into some of the other series around the National Hockey League, particularly the Oilers and the Leafs and how those series are going. But we also have some interesting notes around Andre Kuzmenko and how things went for him this year heading into next year. So, Harm, you and Durant have been doing great work um, with uh, the Athletic online version talking about the Canucks, their report cards looking ahead to next season. Drancer, of course, covering the Kraken as he's enjoying his time down in Seattle. He should be going to watch more Mariner games as far as I'm concerned and not Mariner games that involve that Eastern Canadian team. Uh, With all of that, you guys have discovered some interesting information around Kuzmenko because I know there's always been a feeling that certainly he had a lot of success under both Bruce Boudreaux and Rick Tockett, but there was some tough love administered at various times, including at the end of the year by Tockett around Kuzmenko, finishes the year with 39 goals. What have you discovered? Yeah, it surprised me that for all of um, all the talk about some of the benchings Kuzmenko uh, had under Tockett, uh, the, the pretty blunt commentary Tockett had at times about Kuzmenko's defensive game, uh, all of it sort of sparking a sort of storyline or narrative about um, Kuzmenko maybe getting the short end of the stick a little bit at times that Kuzmenko has actually averaged more ice time under Rick Tockett than he did under Bruce Boudreaux. I think the difference is 32 seconds. He actually hasn't slipped in terms of usage at all in terms of five on five in the power play. And then you also sort of think back to how Kuzmenko had been healthy scratched under Boudreaux even once. And all of a sudden you like, the way I'm thinking about it now is, okay, yeah, Kuzmenko's defensive play absolutely will need to improve for him to build trust and continue getting top-line opportunities next season. 
But for all all of um all the discussion about Tockett specifically and their and the relationship between him and Kuzmenko, that uh that in reality the tough love Kuzmenko has received is the the has probably been overblown. It it hasn't really been a thing. No, but certainly deployment, right? Like when you take him off Pedersen's line and at times take him off the first unit power play, that is a thing, even if the overall ice time is the same. But for me, but didn't I you see that he, under Boudreaux as well? Like there would there would be moments where Kuzmenko, he, it's not as if he was glued to Pedersen's line. It wasn't as if Kuzmenko was glued to the first unit power play either. I uh, no, that's fair. Yeah, maybe it's a bit of recency bias on my part. But you know, as I look at it, I I don't necessarily equate it to their relationship because I think Kuzmenko handled it all really well. Yeah, right, absolutely. And for for talking. Talkit wants to keep players accountable. I think players have said they want to be kept accountable. And I, you know, like has the message sunk in in terms of what's expected? Maybe not. But I don't think all of a sudden that uh, Andre Kuzmenko is, this coach doesn't like me. I don't like him. I want to be out. Like there's none of that So I, as, as I see it. Uh, so, you know, we'll see. Maybe we'll get some comments from his agent at some point down the road. But um, I, I don't know that it's a thing. I fully expect next year at training camp, Kuzmenko is going to be back with Pedersen and is going to be given every opportunity to show that he's learned and can, you know, play at both ends of the ice and do what the organization requires him to do, right? And and we're seeing that even with a player like Nils Hoaglander. And not that, you know, sending him to the minors had anything to do with accountability. It was just development. And they felt he'd been fast-tracked and that this would be a good thing for the player. And he took it well. So, I have no reason to believe that all of a sudden there's going to be a relationship issue with Kuzmenko and Tockett. I just think that if you're Tockett, you want to send a message that even our 39-goal scorer can be held accountable. And and that's a good message to send to the entire organization. Absolutely. And just watching these playoffs, it's interesting how the best teams have everybody buying in and sort of boards, whether it's boards and out, the wingers getting getting the pucks out, whether it's overall puck management in the offensive zone. Uh, you watch, for example, the Rangers Devil series. And for as much as Patrick Kane has produced offensively, what what's really struck me is hey, this is a player in Kane who typically over the last few seasons has had some of the poorest defensive metrics in the NHL. And yet his level of buy-in to the Rangers' neutral zone. Forecheck that is slow that has slowed down the Devils' dynamic rush offense. The way that he's been backchecking, the way that on at least two occasions he has uh, forced turnovers that have resulted in uh, in the Rangers scoring goals. That that speaks volumes to what happens in playoff hockey and the and the standard that an organization needs to hit to where you can look at a player like Patrick Kane and go, all right, this guy in the regular season is probably one of our weakest links in terms of pure defensive talent, but look at the way this guy's working. And in the playoffs, he's providing legit impact away from the puck. That's helping us win games. So seeing the way the playoffs have unfolded in that way, I think that really reinforces how for talk it to sort of reinforce a higher level of, of standards for this, for all of these forwards in terms of two way playing commitment, how that's absolutely a positive. Let's uh, let's look ahead to, or not look ahead, but let's look back at the weekend that was in the NHL playoffs and eight games, Saturday and Sunday, all eight games won by the road team. Now, the road team, obviously the higher seed in all eight of those games, but we've seen the trend in the last couple of years that home ice advantage matters less 
and less in these playoffs. Yeah, I've always viewed home ice as a as nothing more than a slight advantage. Obviously, you get the um, get the crowd into it on your side, but you also know that if the road team gets a quick one, that building becomes silent and it and it becomes almost an energy sapping environment. Um, totally. Not to mention the only real advantage is is beyond that and the and the energy and, and comfort of being at home is uh, having last change. And obviously, there are some coaches that are really smart about how they how they leverage that um leverage those matchups but other times you have you have had coaches who overthink it right and they become too invested in that game almost to the detriment of their team you look at for example um Toronto in game 1 he had obviously the uh, Sheldon Keith and the Leafs had the Matthews uh, Marner line Tampa Bay of course wanted to get the Sorelli shutdown line out against Matthews as much as possible and Keefe having last change, normally last change would be an, an advantage, but he was almost overthinking it in that instead of just going, all right, I have Austin Matthews, I have Mitch Marner, two of the best players on the planet. I'm just going to play these guys against Sorelli. Fine, you want to play Sorelli against these guys? Go ahead. But Keefe actually started to try and hide those guys from that matchup, and it 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 became a... Uh, it became something that I don't think worked in um, in that line's favor. So he almost big brained it, right? So that's that's an example of how um, obviously you get the advantage of 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 that last change, but it isn't um, it isn't always a clear cut black and white um, edge. And um, I don't think it's I, I've never viewed it as a huge advantage. I've always looked at it as a as a slight edge more than anything else. Meanwhile, as far as uh, the two Canadian teams, well, there's three obviously with Winnipeg, but um you know, the Leafs and Oilers tend to draw a little bit more attention in these parts. And both teams got a little bit fortunate. I know fans of them aren't going to like me saying that. But if you look at if you look at the Kings and Oilers, Kings have a three nothing lead. And as we saw here in Vancouver, although the Vancouver, although the Canucks aren't nearly the team that, that those either of those two teams are three nothing lead doesn't obviously mean everything. But Kings were incredible in the first period. Kings were incredible in the third period. They should have had a two to three goal lead rebuilt in the third period with the grade eight chances that they had, but they didn't convert. Um, and next thing you know, late goal by Evander Kane, and they lose the game in overtime. And it was a similar situation the night before with the Leafs. The Lightning were incredible in the third period, had a ton of chances to bury them. But as I said, in the case of both games, they played with their food a little bit. And Leafs wind up with a late goal, Ryan O'Reilly on the power play, and they wind up winning in overtime. And so you, you certainly had a situation where um, the Kings could have taken a commanding lead. Tampa Bay would have taken a 2-1 lead. Instead, Leafs are up 2-1. The Oilers series is tied at 2, and you feel like you've got some teams that, that um, I don't want to say stole one, because if you look at the overall shots, maybe they didn't. But based on form in those most recent games, maybe they did steal one. Yeah, Tampa game three was really disappointing. And you talk about a game stolen. That was absolutely game stolen. Uh, Tampa Bay was all over Toronto. That was the Lightning's fastball. That was their their grade A type performance overall as a as a team. I'll also say, by the way, so there was a friend that I hadn't seen in a while. We were like, all right, we want we both want to watch Lightning Leafs. So we went to uh, the Pint. So in Vancouver, first of all, the Pint, great food, by the way, but. We walk in, there's a Leafs flag on the wall there, which Ew. I'm like, okay, what's going on here? Yeah. Then we're watching the game. Each time the Leafs score, they the bar turns off the um the game audio and starts playing the Leafs goal song. 
in Vancouver. Oh my God. Blasphemous. It was, it was awful. And to, and to then ha- have a situation where you, um, you watch it go down to, um, an, an OT winner for, for the Leafs. And there, you know, there were a couple, we were, we were actually, our table was the only one sort of that seemed jacked up when the lightning would score. It was every, it, we were surrounded by Leafs jerseys and, oh man, that was, uh, that, that was not fun. And I mean, that, that was a tough one because with Vasilevsky, I felt like he needed to needed to make that save on O'Reilly. You look at the 100%. way you look, you look at the way the Lightning were defending that third period for 19 minutes. That was a masterclass, right? They didn't sit back. They were forechecking. They were creating offense. They were the better team in the third period. It just came down to okay, finally in the last minute, the Leafs the Leafs got set up, and O'Reilly in front jamming the rebound through Vasilevsky like that. That's a soft yeah, seven goal. Hole. Yeah, That's you got to save that from goal. that tight. Yeah, and it, no doubt about it. And look, and he's been an incredible goaltender for a long time. So you're not going to, you know, um, over be overly critical. But yeah, it's a it's a save you need your goaltender to make, your championship goaltender to make, no doubt about it. And then you look at the next night and the number of chances. You know, they um, Edmonton goes to to Campbell um, instead of Skinner, and like he played great uh, after the goaltending change, right? So you know that's certainly going to be a bit of a dynamic in that series as well, really with both goaltenders. So. What do you make of what that series is going to look like going forward? Because if there's ever a team that should be able to defend a 3-0 lead, it's the LA Kings. And again, for the most part in the third period, they defended it in Edmonton's end. And they just couldn't finish. And next thing you know, and you knew it was coming, right? That they were going to find a way to get one. Yeah, well, well, Hyman and Kane getting going is, is really bad news for the Kings because for the early parts of the series, it was it was really dry settle carrying... Uh, carrying the load, and obviously McDavid was still doing his thing. But outside of those two guys, they weren't really getting any any offense. Uh, and to see Hyman and Kane, and obviously Hyman scored, I think it was eighty three points. And in Kane, if you go back to the postseason last year, was leading the league in goals for a really long time. To get those guys waking up at the exact same time, that's um, that that's a scary proposition to me, especially because I don't think we've seen the best of McDavid yet. He's been buzzing. He's been playing well overall. Had three assists the other night. But he hasn't taken over a game yet the way we're used to. And I feel like that's coming at some point. It has to. Uh, I feel like it's inevitable that he single-handedly will win at least um, one game for Edmonton. So uh, for LA to blow that, I uh, that, that's really tough. Really, really tough. And um, I'm leaning towards, I mean, look, anything can happen in the playoffs. Um, but huh. <laughs> Actually, whoops, offended your answer for that one. But um Yeah. <laughs> but um I'm leaning Edmonton now, the way that uh the way the way that um you know they came back and, and won that game. Yeah, you know, and looking at this, the dry sidle has been incredible, right? And last year I was like public enemy number one in Edmonton for saying that they're they're a one-man team and that one man is McDavid, right? And I know that Dry is a great player, and I probably should have exempted him from my original tweet, but you know. McDavid does so much to draw so much attention to be the focus of everybody. It puts everybody else in the best possible position to have success. And, and to your point, McDavid's been fine. He's been getting better as the series has progressed, but he hasn't taken over. Drysaddle's been on the ice for like every goal this team has scored virtually. Um, you know, it's certainly at five on five. And this guy's playing at an incredible level. And when they need to play, it almost seems like they're turning to Drysaddle right now. Yeah, it, it gives them a sort of edge that... Uh that the Kings just 
don't have in terms of a superstar who can just take a series over, right? You watch, for example, uh, Colorado versus Seattle even. And for as well as Seattle has been playing as a team, they just haven't had an answer when Nathan McKinnon has gone God mode. And, and so obviously through the first portion of, of this series, we've seen that from dry settle and spurts. But whether it's him or, or whether it's McDavid through the back half of the series, that's what that's what worries me. And for LA to sort of counter, look, they're an excellent defensive team and they're built better than most to try and shut those guys down. But they're going to need a Kevin Fiala to really rise and, and play his absolute best hockey. And it's a tough spot for him, him as well. Of course, just returning in game four, coming back, coming back from injury. They um you know, whether it's him, whether it's Kempe, they're going to need their their top offensive guys to do the absolute best that uh, that they can because otherwise they may not get an answer for what uh, Drysaddle and, and McDavid and, and what that power play can do uh, can do as a whole. Yeah, you're right. And so, where do you see the goaltending going for both teams? For Ed for Edmonton and for LA, LA, yeah. Well, for LA, they should go back to Corpus Allo again because he um, he's been great for most of the series, and down the stretch, his um, his numbers were excellent. I know Copley picked up a lot of wins, but his um, his performance relative to how well the Kings defended wasn't very wasn't very good. Uh, Corpus Allo's play was even before he came to LA in front of Columbus, which had one of the worst defensive environments in the NHL. Corpus Allo was lights out there as well. So they should go to Corpus Allo, Corpus Allo again. Edmonton, I have no idea. What would you do? I'd stick with Campbell. Yeah. Right? I mean, he kept him in the game in that third period. And, you know, I I don't know that uh, that Skinner is that guy where he's earned it to that level. Like, it's not like a it's not like an organizational disaster if you make a change at this point, right? Like, think about Luongo Schneider and think about, you know, Markstrom and Vladder earlier this year. Like, when you make those types of moves, they have a, they have the ability to kind of shake your organization to the foundation. I don't think that's the case here uh, in Edmonton. So I'd ride the hot goaltender. Yeah, I would too. It was interesting that um, Kevin Bieksa on uh, on on the highlight uh, on Sportsnet Central after was and obviously he was just guessing, but he um, he was he was leaning towards Skinner, and, and I thought that was uh, thought that was interesting. I figured. Like you, Campbell, right? Ride the right, ride the hot hand. But looking at the way Bieksa, basically like an oracle, predicted in the intermissions what was going to happen. First, uh, when they were down three zero, going like, "Hey, Edmonton can can get back into this power play goal." Then even strength goal, they'll they'll be uh, right there again. And then, of course, um, you know, predicting that Hyman would break through and and joking that for the Kings, you know, picking Marcel Dion as the OT winner because he just thought Edmonton was going to uh, take it away, um, you know. Hard to hard to go against that, but yeah, I I honestly don't know how I would play that if I if I was Edmonton. Well, the one thing that's always impressed me about the NHL playoffs is the emotional resiliency that all teams have. Um, there's just so much at stake and everybody's willing to give everything that you know, you could lose a three overtime game and you can bounce back the next week. You can get blown out the, this game and you can bounce back the next game. Like your goaltender can be terrible this game. He can stand on his head the next game. Like there's always an emotional resiliency that goes with the Stanley Cup playoffs that I don't think the other sports that have series necessarily offer. So it, it just makes these things harder to predict for me, right? Like, I mean, if you look at both of them right now, obviously there's going to be a lot of pressure on Tampa to win game four at home. You don't want to go back. 
to Toronto, down 3-1 with two games on the road left, right? Yeah, certainly Edmonton's going to feel like they've got some momentum. They dodged a bullet. But I just don't believe that that's how this sport rolls. It just hasn't. It hasn't demonstrated that to me yet. So uh, I think um, all of these games are going to be uh, interesting and difficult to predict going forward with uh, different heroes coming out the back end. And maybe one day we'll be talking about the Vancouver Canucks in the same light. But uh, for us, hey, if you want playoff hockey, as we mentioned, get on out to Abbotsford on Wednesday, game one. Or sorry, first two games are in Calgary. But then uh, the following Wednesday, they will be back here in uh, the, the Lower Mainland, in the Fraser Valley, I should say, to, to Abbotsford for game three of that series and potentially a game four and a game five. Meanwhile... If you're looking for other podcast options, Dave Quinn, the head coach of the San Jose Sharks and the head coach of Team USA at the World Hockey Championships is Craig Custance and Sean Gentili's guest on the Athletic Hockey Show USA this week at The Athletic. Also, Rob Pizzo, Jesse Granger, and guest co-host Jeremy Rutherford will have the roundtable on the Athletic Hockey Show podcast Wednesday, also at The Athletic. And as for us, you can get a new subscription to The Athletic for just $2 a month for 12 months when you visit theathletic.com slash vancast. We'll be back next week. we got to figure out a day here because I fly out tomorrow to Kansas City for the NFL Draft. Then I'm in Vegas for my son's 7-on-7 football tournament. Then I'm in Toronto for the CFL Draft. So more than likely, our show next week will happen uh, midweek, probably somewhere around Thursday. Does that work for you? Yeah. All right, buddy. Enjoy your weekend. Enjoy the NFL Draft. Enjoy the NHL playoffs. All of it. We'll talk to you soon. As for everybody else, thanks to the VIPs for listening. We look forward to doing it again. 